Because I think we really do work ourselves up. And I, I think we find, because we are the descendants of uh, monkeys, there's a part of my brain being like, I'm ready to freak out and fight, flight, or freeze, you know? So just give me a cue. And then when I go, oh no, I didn't finish the script I was supposed to finish in time for the, you know, the record for the actor who's coming in tomorrow. Yes. My brain goes, oh, is that the cue? We're gonna die! <laughs> you know, and starts waving its arms around like Kermit the Frog. Happy Monday, people, and welcome back to another episode of Airplane Mode. I'm your host, Clay Skipper. This week, I talked to Raphael Bob Waxberg. He is best known as the creator of BoJack Horseman, but he has also just recently released a collection of short stories titled Someone Who Will Love You in All Your Damaged Glory. Um, What he's doing in those stories is similar to what he does on BoJack, which is he takes complicated, thorny, sometimes dark topics and makes them funny and accessible and relatable. So the book deals mostly with dating and relationships and love. And it also deals with some of the topics that are dealt with on BoJack, things like loneliness and anxiety and existential despair and uh, all these happy things. But I have found that engaging with Raphael's work, and I certainly felt this way reading the book, can often make you feel less alone and a little bit more optimistic in dealing with these sort of huge existential human problems. So I hoped a conversation with him might do a similar thing or provide a similar feeling and give some insights into how he actually deals in his own life with these complications that he's addressing in this book and on the show, things like confidence and anxiety and whatnot. And so he didn't disappoint, you know, he talked a little bit about how his self-confidence has evolved and how he felt he found it more in his early thirties. He talks about, you know, he's someone who obviously is involved in a lot of creative projects. So he talks about how he deals with this sort of anxiety when he stretched too thin and then he goes on a a long but interesting tangent on sort of the beauty and power of psychedelic mushrooms and to finish he offers one of my favorite favorite fuck-ups that we've had on the show thus far so all in all i really enjoyed sitting across from and having this conversation and i hope you guys enjoy it as well Raphael, welcome to airplane mode thank you Am I pronouncing that correctly? Airplane mode? I believe so. <laughs> I'm uh, Mormon Raphael. Raphael yeah. Yeah. Sometimes people pronounce my name differently and I, I don't notice it. Like, I guess Raphael, Raphael, Ooh, interesting. Raphael. It all kind of doesn't make a difference. But once I introduced my, who is now my wife, to some friends of mine, and afterwards she goes, Have I been calling you by the wrong name this whole time? I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, Oh, Ben uh, calls you Raphael. I go, oh, I don't know. I don't hear the difference. <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. Yes, any anything you want to call me is fine by me. How did you get that name? I, my parents gave it to me. Okay. Well, well, I, I earned by the way, this is not battle. where I saw this episode going I, off the bat. I, I, I killed another Raphael and then became Raphael, like the Santa Claus. <laughs> there can only be one. Can, right? Did you meet other Raphaels growing up? Occasionally. I, Raphael is an, is an uncommon enough name that I'm still kind of mad when I meet other Raphaels. <laughs> Or when I have a friend who goes, oh, I, you know, I have another friend named Raphael. I go, no, I'm your friend, Raphael. Exactly. You can't. What, what are you talking about? Other friend. Right? Well, it's I fun- want to be the main Raphael in all my friends' lives. It's funny you say that because my name's Clay, yeah. which is pretty uncommon. Yeah. I mean, more common. My parents from the south. I think. Well, I think Clay and Raphael are both good names in that they're common enough that you know their names. Yes. Right. They're not. It's not like what? Do, what is that? People know how to. I mean, Clay is easier to spell than Raphael. But to your point, in a book 
We're here talking about your book. Yes. Someone who will love you in all your damaged glory. Uh-huh. Go buy it. Yeah. Go buy multiple copies. In a book where you don't use a lot of character names, there you is have, a, there's, there's a, a clay. clay. That's right. I was not happy to see that. I have to. Oh, say. you don't. You didn't like that. No, I no, I didn't like it because it's like you're saying when when my friends have like other. You want you want to be the clay, I, even yes. in a fictional book. I am the clay, exactly. <laughs> you know, a lot of these, lot, several of these stories, characters are unnamed. And they're told in the second person. Yeah. Right? They're about you. In a sense, all those stories are also about Clay. That's wow. <laughs> right? <It's laughs> your whole book is when, about me. When is you're reading you're it. Yes, yeah. exactly. What would you say the theme or interweaving thread of all these stories is? It's funny because I feel like I didn't really know until I started doing interviews like this and I was forced to articulate <laughs> what the theme of it is. And then in talking about it, I kind of discovered what I think is there. But I think the theme of the book is about love. And very simple theme is that love is hard. Mm-hmm. And the question is, is it worth it? The stories in this book, I would say a lot of them are arguments on one side or the other. Is love worth it? And I think the conclusions that people draw will be their own conclusions okay, based on where they are in their life and, and how they come to this book and how they react, to the story, how, they, how they bounce across the water of this collection of stories. But it it is open to interpretation, too. I think it is where you're at in your life as you read them. How has your opinion on Is Love Worth It changed? Because you've written some of these stories, what, 15 years ago, 10 years ago? Not that long. About 10 years ago, I'd say, maybe the oldest one. And so how has your response to that question changed over the decades? Yeah, well, I've I've really mellowed out in my middle age. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I'm I'm in my mid 30s now. And, a millennial. Uh, a millennial. A millennial. A real old millennial. Yeah. But as someone in my mid-30s, I can say that I think I have a less cynical view of myself and of my own capacity for happiness than I had when I was in my 20s. That when I was in my 20s, which is where some of these stories come from, and when I was single or in a series of failed relationships – I believed that we are all, in a sense, alone and, you know, no success either in my career or in relationships in love would ever fill the unfillable hole that existed in my heart just on account of me being a a deep and interesting person. And now I feel that that is not true. I feel that I I am married and and I think is a very healthy relationship. Um, and I'm very happy with my career, and I feel very good about myself while also thinking that I am still deep and interesting. (laughs) I don't think, you know, me um, fondling my misery like my tongue around a loose tooth is really necessary for my work uh, or for myself. And to say it's not necessary is a very different thing than, you know, feeling confident and happy and well-adjusted. And I understand not everybody is blessed with that ability. So I don't, I don't, I don't take that for granted or, or prescribe to others. No, just feel better, man. Yeah. You know, but, but I think for me, I am not as existentially lost as I mm. always assumed that I would be. Oh, interesting. And for me, the only cure was time. Huh. And it was just getting older and and feeling better about myself and the situations that I was in, following paths that led me to happiness. And I think, you know, for many people, it is not as easy as that. Yeah. But I, I certainly want to be able to appreciate that for me it is and not pretend uh, for the purposes of appearing deep and interesting that – in order to be deep and interesting, one must be miserable all the time mm-hmm. or existentially alone all the time. Because mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes the cart can come before the horse in that regard or we create personas for ourselves based on what we think we need to be, which gets in our own way. 
And I think I, I did that for a while and then I think I outgrew it with the help of other people. It can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. It can be, absolutely. Was there an age or a, I mean, obviously not a moment. I would imagine it was gradual. Just speaking as someone who I think is sort of going through a similar transformation yeah. right now, but was there an, an age around when this sort of flipped for you? <laughs> yes, it happens when you're 32. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I don't know. No, I mean, I, I think it was becoming more secure yeah. in both my career and my relationship. It was that. For me, it also, I, I attribute it to moving to Los Angeles. I li- was living in New York and I felt very lost and I felt like I was constantly pulled in a lot of directions. And then as soon as I got to Los Angeles, I kind of decided, okay, I want to be a TV writer and I want to move in that direction. And having that clarity of purpose really helped me. The move was part of that, but I also think just being in your late 20s is easier than being in your early 20s, no matter where you live. Yeah. Being in a new lo- location kind of crystallize that huh. in, in a way that made it made it easier to feel that distinction. But yeah, there's no click light bulb moment. Yeah. Uh, it was just kind of a series of working through my issues, man. Yeah. As we all are. We, every day. <laughs> Some people are not. Some yeah, people exactly. are yeah, just like, great. I'm going to put this issue yeah. over here and I'll get to it later. <laughs> and, then, and then find Which I have, I do too. Yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have some of those issues as yeah. well. A reframing that I like is if you think about life as just subtly getting less bad at it every day. That's, yeah. Is like kind of nice. I think that's, may you set, know, May set the bar a little low, but. Yeah, but I, and I think that's an optimistic way of looking at mm-hmm. life. You know, in some ways I think I'm a real glass half full kind of guy. Although I feel like I have people in my life who would argue with that. <laughs> I think I am superficially pessimistic, but I feel like the people who really know me would see me as hopeful mm-hmm. and optimistic. I don't think of myself as a, a cynical, pessimistic person, even though a lot of my work maybe mm-hmm. has those attributes. There's a quote, which I think is from, I think is from the Times story that just came out. Okay. But I think it gets at a lot of this, which, mm-hmm. which is interesting. You say, it's a quote from you. It says, when I say Bojack is optimistic, I think it's optimistic in the way that the story is optimistic. That is, it is about overcoming the relentless sadness of life. And it's about finding ways to get through it, which I think is hopeful. The hopeless opposite would be to suggest that we are incapable of trudging through the muck or even more cynically to pretend there is no muck. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah. And so I, I, I think – and, you know, again, it's it's how are these stories taken and how is my show taken? And so much of that is where you are in your life when you experience this art, right? So I can't prescribe or define for you what this story means because it, it it's going to mean something different for you than it means for me or any other reader. Yes, for me, I think this collection as a whole does have hope. But again, it is about this question and you could read the arguments in this book and come to a different conclusion based on where you're at. Yeah, man. yeah. <laughs> Some of the ideas and, and themes in here, you know, the things like nothing lasts, you can only ever sort of be who you are. The things that are super important to us are really only super important to yeah, us. Yeah, that's that. That's from a story called These Are Facts. Yeah. And it's this this realization that this 18-year-old woman has. And she, she's kind of thinking about the people in her life. Um, and that kind of, yeah, really speaks to that idea, which I quote often. It's a Brian Doyle quote that we live alone in the house of the heart, mm. which I don't know if I believe 100%. Okay. But I, I think that character certainly believes it at that yeah, moment yeah. in the story. Yeah. And I think there is some truth to that, that, you know, we alone are the the audience of the movie that is our life. And we understand all the references and callbacks and connections that nobody else truly can. And the the significance of certain things cannot ever truly be expressed as articulate as you are. Those things that are the most important, you, only you know what they mean and how they're important. Mm. So I go back and forth on if I – now I'm convincing myself as I'm saying it. (laughs) 
uh, I think there is is some truth to that. Yeah. To me, one of the reasons that I want to be a writer and that I enjoy writing and I and I, I strive to be better at writing is my desire to articulate those things mm-hmm. because there are things that I feel and I'm frustrated when I do not know how to express those things. Huh. And so my mission and my job when I'm writing is, okay, how do I describe this feeling in a yeah. way that can express it? And one of my great joys and, and sources of pride is when people tell me, watching your show or reading this story has helped me express a feeling that I have felt. It crystallized. It's, yeah, yeah, that I didn't understand how to recognize. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I'm very proud of and something that, that, that means a lot to me. And then is, have you found an effective way to do the reverse of that, right? Which is once you have crystallized this mm-hmm. thing and written it down and made it explicit, do you ever revisit those ideas as sort of mantras? Like I'm thinking about, you know, if you were having um, like a bad moment in your life, you yeah. might be like, nothing lasts. You know, like does it does it work in reverse where I, you sort of get these funny, things out It's funny, I actually and then... feel the opposite. I feel like when I use something in my work, I, I excise it almost. Like, it, and, and a lot of times that is good for me because especially on, on BoJack, there's a lot of, just gross stuff. Uh-huh. That, so when you say like, you know, what has helped you become more happy-go-lucky yeah, or, or, yeah. or comfortable in yourself, I think honestly a lot of it is just like ejecting a lot of the gunk uh-huh. through these fictional characters and through this show. And I wonder if I didn't have that outlet, would I still hold mm-hmm, on to it? Mm-hmm. But I also think that can go the other way, that sometimes I, I excise the good stuff as well. I did a, a podcast a couple weeks ago where I was talking similarly about how happy and, and well-adjusted I am. And as soon as I left the room, I felt gross. I felt like, oh, was I bragging? Oh, was I was that bad? I don't know. Did I overstate how happy I am? And then I thought, oh, did I just excise the good feelings as well as <laughs> easily excise the bad feelings? Or there's a um, an idea in the book, in the story we're talking about, The Average of All Possible mm-hmm. Things, where she's talking to a receptionist uh, at, at the law firm where, where the, she works. And the woman says to her- Debbie, right? Debbie. Yeah. And Debbie, Debbie says to her, you know, I, I like to tell myself, you're doing the best you can, and that's all that you can do, and that's enough. And that came from something that I had started telling myself because I was really stressed out with my work. and I was really overwhelmed with a lot of stuff that was going on in my life. And I found it very helpful. But then I wrote it in the book and I, it didn't mean anything to me anymore because then it was the thing that Debbie said. Oh, God. <laughs> and I couldn't – it felt like, oh, this is not my thing anymore. And I couldn't – I gave it up. So I don't know. <laughs> Are you, we'll see. You, has something replaced that or what? Well, I got less busy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there you go. So – We'll see. The next time I get stressed out, I might have to come up with a new way to calm myself down. How did you come to that particular phrase? It was what I needed to hear. Huh. And nobody else was saying it to me. <laughs> and so I had to say it to myself. Wow. Because I thought about, like, what am I afraid of? And I was afraid that I wasn't doing everything I could be doing and that I was a failure because of that and that I was letting everybody down. And so to tell myself that I couldn't be doing more than I was doing is what I needed to hear in those moments. Mm-hmm. I think there are other moments where I get lazy or I need to tell myself, you could be doing more. Yeah. <laughs> but I think in that moment, I really was – I was overworked. I was overstressed and it wasn't helpful to feel bad about it. And I, I was able – some part of my brain was able to recognize that and I knew I needed to, to – forgive myself for falling behind and, and missing some deadlines and know that me beating myself up about it wasn't helping. And in order to get the work done I needed to get done, I first needed to allow myself to be okay. You said, I asked myself, what am I afraid of? I'm curious where. Well, I was afraid. You were afraid, okay. <laughs> and, and I, you know, I didn't know how to assuage my fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, first, the first step should be to at least identify what am I afraid of. 
because I think generalized fear and anxiety is not helpful. And again, you often cannot control it. Uh-huh. But I think if you can, for me at least, identify a source, even if it's not the source, even if you're just generally anxious and scared for a number of reasons, having something to focus on and trying to at least fix that gives you something to do. And then if you are doing something, you feel a little less helpless. Huh. So for me, I identified my fear that I wasn't going to be able to do all the things that I promised people and I was letting people down. And once I was able to think, okay, what are the, what are the practical ways of addressing this fear? And uh, one is letting people know that I wasn't able to do all the things and I needed more time and I needed more help. Knowing that and doing that helped me a lot. I feel like deadlines are never as no, – nothing is ever as dire as you think it is. Yes. That, well, that's, now, that's not entirely true. Well, that's the problem is but, because they need to be at least a little bit dire to motivate yeah. you to do them. Because I, I find myself – most of my life, I think deadlines are very helpful. Yes. I think when I – My I, editors are listening to this and be like, yeah, well, you never hand anything on time, <laughs> no. motherfucker. But, I, but I, I, I think that if I really didn't believe that deadlines meant anything, I would yeah. never get anything done. Yes. So it is helpful to have a little bit of that – you know, like, come on, you got to do it, you got to do it, you got to do it, you got to get it out. But there comes a point where it is not helpful, where it's like, I, I cannot possibly do what I need to do. And at that point, it's it doesn't help to know, well, you have to. Yeah. Right? That's that does that's not a exactly. motivator. You cannot make me care more about this thing. You know, a lot of the problem is, is a lot of the stuff that I'd signed up for was stuff that I really cared about and wanted to be doing. So, you know, it wasn't a factor of, like, I need more motivation to do all this. It was just, it was too much stuff. I've often thought, like, what are the stakes, really? That's mm-hmm. been a helpful question yes. for me, right? And you have that moment in the story about, I'm sorry that I don't remember any of the titles, but so I do they remember all have, the story. They all have weird names. The, the story about the, the President's Park. <laughs> yes, uh, more of the you that you already are. Yes. Also, and... a, a very unmemorable title. <laughs> <laughs> and the guy whose job it is to dress up as Chester A. a. Arthur. Arthur. Yeah. You know, he's talking to his boss, Mr. Gupta, right? Yeah. And Mr. Gupta's mad because the park's not running the way he, ho- he hoped it would. And he says, this is life or death. Right. And Chester A. Arthur's sister is going yeah. through a, an actual life or death scare with cancer. And yeah. he's like, this isn't life or death because <laughs> yeah. I know what life and death looks like and it's right. sickness. And it's sort of that idea, again, that just sort of if you can step back and be like, what are the stakes here really? Yeah. I always find that, a re- uh, again, using that that idea of a reframing technique, I, I like that a lot. Yeah, because I think we really do work ourselves up. And I, I think we, we find, because we are the descendants of monkeys who were in constant fear for their lives. And, you know, some, some humans, sadly, still have those kinds of stakes. Yeah. But I, I think – for a lot of people now uh, who don't feel those lives or death stakes every day, you know, we still have the parts of our brain that are wired for that. So they're ready. Mm-hmm. There's a part of my brain being like, I'm ready to freak out and fight, flight, or freeze, you know. So just give me a cue. Mm-hmm. And then when I go, oh, no, I didn't finish the script I was supposed to finish in time for the, you know, the record for the actor who's coming in tomorrow. Yes. My brain goes, oh, is that the cue? We're going to die! <laughs> you know, and starts waving its arms around like Kermit the Frog. Yes. And then it's helpful for me to go, brain, settle down. That's no. Yeah. I, the brain's like, I got this thing, though. I want to use it. I got this toy. I'm real excited. You never give me an opportunity. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use it. And that's, yeah, that's uh, – maybe I need, I need to um, – risk my life more so my brain understands what real danger looks like. I want to stick real quick on the the point you made at the beginning of that because I think is a very important caveat, which is nothing is as dire as you think it is. Yes. And I'm speaking, I'm speaking from a very privileged place yes. in that some stuff for, for people yes, absolutely. in less privileged spaces is very dire. Yeah. But back to your Kermit the Frog point, when that, to make an extremely clumsy segue, sure. 
when your brain is doing that Kermit the Frog mm-hmm. freaking out, how do you calm down in that moment? How do you sort of recalibrate? I've tried a few things. I think the thing that works best for me is to allow that fear to work its way through, to not try to bottle it up or hold it back or ignore it. Run away from it or something. You know, there's there's a a line in in BoJack that is very important to me, which is something that I've told my wife and I I try to tell other people, which is don't feel bad about feeling bad, which is to know that you cannot control your feelings and you cannot control your feelings about your feelings – but as best as you can to at least intellectually understand that your feelings are valid and they're okay and don't try to stifle them or feel shame about them. You know, one thing I've, I've heard recently, which I feel so stupid that this did not occur to me for the first 30 some odd years of my life that I have, but it makes total sense. And I think a lot of people know inherently is that sometimes you need to physically get that stress or anxiety out mm. again because your brain is like I want to yeah. do something and so that's why people punch pillows yeah. or just sometimes scream you know one time at in this period of my life where I was very stressed uh, I was driving down the freeway and I started screaming in my car and I didn't know why I was doing and I thought oh no is this who I am now <laughs> why this is something to be embarrassed about and then I told someone about it uh, and, and she said no, that's great. You're getting it out and you're expressing it because you were feeling it. And when mm-hmm. you when you were feeling it, it was inside you. Yeah. And by letting it get out, you let it free in a way. You excise it in the same way that I excise it by, by writing about it. And, so, and then I think, yeah, so I think one is physically doing something yeah. to get it out. And then for me, writing and articulating it is very helpful. Mm. And if you can identify it, it's less scary. See it for what it actually right, is. Right, which, not... again, which again kind of ties back to like why – one of the things I really want to do is be good at articulating mm-hmm. the way I feel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I remember the first time I tried uh, mushrooms on a pizza. No, <laughs> the first time <laughs> I did mushrooms with a, a friend of mine who was like all about it. Like you're going to go uh-huh. on a quest. You're going to have a vision. You're going to you learn things about yourself. You're going to understand new things. And look, man, it's a lot of fun. But – it was also frustrating for me because I felt like I couldn't articulate what I was feeling. Uh, uh-huh. And I think there's something very valid about having feelings that you cannot articulate. I don't think you should shut those feelings out. But I also want to be able to communicate them. I do not want to have feelings that are just for me, that I cannot express to other people. That, that frustrates me. I, I like to know that I can tell someone how I am feeling. <laughs> and, that, and that, yes, that I'm not the sole audience of the movie that is my life, that I'm, I'm sharing it with people and, and that my life is a conversation with other people. The mushrooms didn't help that. <laughs> really? Yeah, so it made me okay. very internal. I was yeah, very yeah, yeah, like, yeah. oh, this is just for and me. It's... No one can possibly understand <laughs> what I am going through right now and I am the supreme understander of the universe <laughs> and I couldn't possibly communicate it with it, anyone because – the universe is only as I experience it. Yeah. And that is so beautiful and true and magical, but also terrifying. Yeah. Trapped in the house of the heart. Yeah, exactly. Did I nail it or did I butcher it? It's, no, it's more or less it. Uh, alone in the house of there the heart, okay. I think. There's something ineffable about I, I, I hear all I know, the time but, from people who, who take psychedelics that yeah. I've never taken them. I, increasingly, the more I talk to people, the more I think I should take them. I, but, I, I, I'd encourage it. I mean, I, there's a lot about the experience that I would recommend. But that yeah. part of it, I mean, the, the ineffable, like I don't want things to be ineffable. I want to F things, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I want <laughs> I want everything to be utterly effable. There you go. Uh, and I, I have friends, like my friend Kevin, who got me onto mushrooms, who feels the opposite. He's like, no, there's something glorious and magical about not being able to express or understand things yeah. and to and to feel comfort in that 
you know, free-floating space is an important part of life. And I understand that. And I, to some level, agree with that. And I, I, I want to have those experiences as well. And I want to be comfortable with that part of my consciousness. But it's not where I want to live most of my life. Feels worth mentioning to the kids potentially listening to this show that we're not doctors. You should consult. You should consult your internists. Fifteen-year-olds have internists, right? Pediatricians. What is that? What we call them. Yes. Before um, before doing any sort of psychedelics, or like a cool friend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Go up to the the kid smoking cigarettes in your high school or vaping. Yeah, and ask. Don't maybe ask. don't smoke. Don't vape. That stuff's dumb. That's bad for you. You're killing our shot at a jewel sponsorship. I no good. I don't like it. But I think I think consciousness altering psychedelics. Remember when they made Cookie Monster tell kids that cookies are a sometimes food? <laughs> I feel like mushrooms are a sometimes food. <laughs> it's not for every day. Don't, you know, don't get trapped up that river. But I think it's worth doing once. Okay. And I I I'm not a doctor, but doctors, what do they know? Look, here's what I here's what I will say. <laughs> Here's what someone you get one, one takeaway from this podcast. It's like a hard sell of psychedelic mushrooms. What do they know? Let me can I make my hard sell for psychedelic mushrooms? Please. My mom listens to the show, so she's gonna send me a very angry email about it. Well, no, I you know. I would like to let your mom know this is nothing to be afraid of. Because again, I it's they're not addictive. Uh I mean they like anything is addictive, yeah. right? Like spider solitaire on your computer is addictive if you get addicted to it. So, you know, everyone should be careful, but it's not it's not like cigarettes, it's not like alcohol. You know, and I think you you want to be careful and you want to do with people who know what they're doing and not mm-hmm. just experiment on your own. But here's what I was told about mushrooms before I tried it for the first time. And I again, I don't do it. I've done it like maybe two or three times in my life, right? So I'm not like, yeah, mushrooms every day, man. But here's <laughs> you're what, not on mushrooms right now. I'm currently not. I did them once and I'm still on them. <laughs> I um, never came back. Here's here's what I was told about it. The reason you have a euphoric experience when you try mushrooms is because. What mushrooms does is it convinces your brain that you are dying. It's like a little bit of poison. Huh. And it it makes your brain think that you are dying, so your brain floods itself with endorphins. And so you feel supreme love and beauty for everything all around you. And so having this experience of being on mushrooms has made me personally more comfortable with the idea that someday I will die because now I feel like I can anticipate what that will feel like and it will feel beautiful because, yes, of course, it's just a thing happening in your brain, right? And now I, I understand, oh, this is why people believe in heaven. I'm getting very Pete Holmesy now. <laughs> I'm getting right, very philosophical. Sorry, alumni of the podcast. I know, so there I know. You go. I think, oh, I like the idea that when I die, I will have this euphoric feeling and I will believe that everything is okay the way that I have sometimes felt when I have done mushrooms. And I like knowing that people who close to me who have died – in their final moments, might have felt this warmth and safety. And it's not fear. It's love and warmth and safety. And again, it's all because your brain is like, yeah, yeah, good. Yeah. all the good feelings I have, take them because I'm not going to use them again. You know, yeah. boom, 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 boom. So then there's a little bit of a come down afterwards uh-huh. after your brain's like, oh, we're still alive? Well, I used all the good stuff. So <laughs> you're going to be not so great for, you know, a couple hours. But I, I, I think so in that way, the experience was profound for me. Yeah. And I think it is helpful. And I would encourage not, you know, not for like going to parties. I think like find, go with someone you love go to the beach, watch a sunset, and uh, explore your mind. I really came around hard on these, Yeah, I love I? that. Because before I was like, no, not for me. 
Uh, but I've, I've convinced myself there yet you again. Go. You Am hear I, that, Mom? Is this doing Make a good job? Make the bed. I'm coming so, home. We're doing shrooms. Do it with your mom. I think it's a lovely idea. I think if, you know, if, if she's into it, try it. But again, I worry that it's a very individual thing and that when I'm on a journey and then I look at somebody else who is also going on a journey, I feel like, oh, we're not on this journey together. You're not feeling what I'm feeling. Yeah, You're not experiencing yeah. what I'm – even though it feels like you are because I am on drugs, you are not. And, and so, so, so then when I come out of it, I get cynical again and I feel like, well, that was fake. That mm, wasn't real. Interesting. But, you know, I had feelings that I felt in that moment. Clearly, I have mixed feelings about this whole experience. <laughs> no, but, I'm going around and around. But my but, point is you should buy my book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's also a wonderful experience. It'll make you feel a lot of feelings. There are high highs and low lows in the book. It, yeah. Um, and it is quite a journey. It is what I imagine psychedelics are like yes, in some ways. in some ways. Not um, always. We will transition to the f- final what, and what a transition show. it will be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was beautiful. I loved it. I mean, thank you. That was a great yes, meditation. I, don't think I, I, I mean, I don't think I've gotten that far into my if, use of drugs in an interview before. So there's, there's an exclusive. But to your point, there's a lot of research. I mean, please, Michael, please Michael Pollan also, has. Please do not arrest me. Anybody yeah. <laughs> listening to this. My mom's going to perform a citizen's arrest. Well, fair. Michael Pollan, you know, has done a lot of writing about this. And he had that book last year, How to Change Your Mind. Oh, that's it's right. all about. Yeah sort of the therapeutic benefits for people who do have terminal illness who right, right. go through clinical right. trials with MDMA or psilocybin. And so. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of weird stigma and kind of outdated ideas attached to a lot of substances that are not really based on real science. But I think sometimes those stigmas kind of wind their way into the scientific yeah. community because those people also grew up in the society that we all live in. Why is alcohol legal mm-hmm. <laughs> Why are cigar- if the fda today was like shown a cigarette and like i made i invented this new thing it's mm-hmm. a cigarette can i sell this the food and drug administration would be like for what purpose yeah <laughs> to get people addicted to it so they want to do more of it that's crazy yeah that's, yeah, an, yeah, that's yeah. an insane prospect mm-hmm. that that is a thing that is legal to buy yeah and yet there are other less harmful drugs that are heavily regulated and illegal as nuts yeah. to me. To your point on stigma, too, it's interesting. My friend who actually works at GQ made this point that I thought was really interesting about on TV. It's am- just, go, again, going back to stigma, it's amazing that you never see sex on TV. No. Which can very often be like a – I mean, you do see it on premium channels, right. even on cable TV, which can be a very beautiful act. Sure. And yet we see murder all the time. All the time. Like people are just murdering each Constant. other on – well, I'm not going to name any channels – but, you know, yeah, and it's just it's again, to go back to how things get labeled or stigmatized, that's I thought was eye opening to me. Just like, oh, yeah, that's interesting. We never show sex, but we always show murder. I'm, I'm sometimes embarrassed to say this because I'm not always a fan of the company it puts me in. But I am I'm very worried about the the messages that we send through art to the children of America <laughs> or to people in general, you know, and I, I, say, I say as someone who creates art yeah. and is, tries to be somewhat thoughtful about it, I'm very aware of how much art, by which I mean popular art, but also, I guess, unpopular art, but, you know, I mean like TV shows and books yeah. and things like that, how much it affects the way we feel about the world. Again, the reason I write or want to write is because I think that has power and that words have power and they mean something. And so I'm, I'm very dubious when I hear writers or producers or network executives wash their hands of that responsibility and say, 
yes, you know, the, the violence that exists in this country is completely unrelated to the violence that exists in our popular narratives. That to me feels very disingenuous mm. or in, just incorrect. I, mean, I don't know if they're lying or if they just don't see it the way I see it. But I also think emotionally what we do has power. And I, I worry sometimes about, you know, all this stuff that I am excising in my work is it then given to somebody else to collect? Am I making the world more of a bummer uh, <laughs> by, by ejecting the bummer for me uh, and, and passing it off to the, the reader or viewer? Huh. But I don't know. Well, if it makes you feel better, I read your book and I was like, it was one of those sort of really beautiful things where I was like, oh, I, I feel seen. Seriously. Well, good. I mean, it's just like, well, good. That's how did what this I... person so deeply and fundamentally under, understand my experience? Well, thank you. So... That is the goal. And like I said, you know, I'm hoping that I'm giving the reader thoughtful ways to express themselves or things that remind them of things in their lives or things they can reflect Mm -hmm. off of and not just making them feel bad. Mm -hmm. But I'm aware that sometimes my work does that. (laughs) And I don't want to just shrug that off. It's like, well, I don't know, man. I think you're doing it very thoughtfully. Oh, thank you. So the last question on the show, you ask every guest for a favorite fuck up. Okay. That I've done or that I've <laughs> seen in what, – what does that mean? Oh, that's interesting. I need more um, information. Well, so so here's – I always give too much information, so I sort of oh, okay. well, gave you the say. abridged version there. But I usually characterize it as a failure of some sort that at the time felt sort of catastrophic. And maybe looking back on now with some perspective, you're like, oh, that actually is one that I'm like, thank God it happened because it got me to – the next thing or the next project or for myself yeah for yourself okay, exactly. I was going to say new coke but yeah. that oh, has nothing to do with coke. me my own favorite fuck they, re- they recovered well from new coke they're doing fine I'm, I, I'm not shedding any tears for the coca-cola exactly. corporation okay I got one this is very personal I'm, I'm trying to think like what is how can I share this story in a way that doesn't completely expose me when I was younger I had a uh, I carried on a brief affair with a a woman who had a very serious boyfriend. Um, and I'm not proud of that. But I was shocked at the time by how easy it was and how easy it was for me to justify and rationalize it to myself that I was not the perpetrator of a misdeed. That, look, you know, all I could do was be here for this woman. She was doing what she wanted to do or felt she needed to do. And plus, this was a very productive, uh, exciting thing for me. And it was a thing that I needed in my life because I was coming off of a period where I felt very unsexy and unlovable. And here was this woman who was really deeply fascinated by me and, you know, thought I was an exciting prospect worth cheating on her boyfriend with. Coming out of that, a few months later, looking back, like, what was I doing? Uh, that in hindsight, I could see this was an unacceptable behavior that I would think that I was better than. And, and what I learned from that was that I cannot always rely on my, my gut alone to know what is right. And that intellectually, there are things that I know are right. And I have to sometimes listen to my brain in that way. And that has been very helpful and instructive and also in the way that I look at other people because I think a lot of people self-identify as good people and they think because I am a good person, if I do a thing and people tell me it is bad, it is not bad because I am good and my intentions were good and therefore the thing was good. 
And that I think that stops people from being reflective and trying to better themselves, right? And I think like the the easiest example I can think of is accusations of racism, right? I think a lot of white people are very uncomfortable with the idea that they could do racist things because I think they think that means they are a bad person and they know in their heart of hearts they are not bad people. If I say something and my friend tells me, hey, that – or even not my friend. If someone on Twitter says, hey, that thing was racist, I – as a good white person, my first, you know, animal instinct is to go, well, n- no, it wasn't because that means I am a racist and therefore I am incapable of doing – saying racist things. And I think it is actually much more helpful to understand that, yes, we all people are flawed and what, what makes you a good person is not that you don't ever do bad things but mm-hmm. is that you learn and you hear and you correct. And so that is something that I've – strive to do since then is, is to to listen when other people tell me you shouldn't be doing this thing mm. and not say but it feels right yeah yeah i don't feel what uh-huh. you are feeling and i'm i trust my feelings to know because my feelings don't always know that's great i mean yeah then that idea of impact over intention is a phrase that i like like yeah, yeah how it impacts that person matters far more than what you in how yes. you intended it to yes. impact them and i think if you can hear criticisms not as criticisms on your character, even if those criticisms are intended as criticisms on your character, but if you can hear them as criticisms of your actions, it is much easier to hear them and correct yourself, I found. It's a great place to end. Well, great. Thank you so much. It's been very insightful, and I appreciate you sharing yeah, we went to some real places. Knowledge. I know. I didn't expect <laughs> to ask you about most of that, but, you know, here we are. And if you would like more of that... And you do Some, want more. Someone who will love you in all your damaged glory can be found wherever books are sold. And it's full of fascinating insights like that. Or if you felt my insights in this podcast were not interesting or fascinating, the book is much better. <laughs> That's the show. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you to Raphael for coming on and being so candid and sharing all of that go buy his book it is great someone who will love you in all your damaged glory available wherever books are sold where is that these days Amazon I guess thank you to Jessamine Molly our producer who makes our voices sound way better than they actually sound in real life so if you meet me prepare to be disappointed if you guys have any feedback any guest recommendations anything at all including hate mail I'm open to that. Don't love it, but I'm open to it. Uh, my email is clay underscore skipper at gq.com. And uh, I look forward to any feedback you guys may have. Please rate, review, subscribe, and I will talk to you next Monday. Enjoy your week. <laughs>